In the last five chapters of Romans, we are seeing the practical applications that come from an individual having a sanctified life. As those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, there's a new life, there's a different way of life that we now belong to. We've been changed. As believers in Jesus Christ, we've been justified before God. We've been declared to be righteous. We've been freed from the power of sin. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, we now have the ability to live a life that is pleasing to the one who purchased us. We could not live a life pleasing to God before, but now we have that ability to through the Holy Spirit. There is something... um, That was something that we could not do before. Before we were slaves to our sin. We were slaves to unrighteousness. We were slaves to the flesh and to its worldly desires. And we lived that way. We lived as slaves to the flesh. But by God's sovereign grace, he provided his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All because of the great love with which he loved us, being rich in mercy. We could not be saved on our own, but by the mercy of God, he acted on our behalf and saved us from an eternity of separation from himself. And it's because of the mercy that God has shown to us, the mercy that that Paul detailed for us in those first 11 chapters of this letter that he started off this section that we're in, in chapter 12, in verse 1, by saying, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Because he was merciful to us and he gave us a new life, we are to present our bodies, all that we are, to him as our sacrifice to worship Him in everything that we do, being willingly obedient to Him at all times. And as we've gone through chapter 12, we've seen what this entails. We started off with service that we have with one another using our spiritual gifts. We look at that in verses 3 through 8. And then we moved on after, we, after verse 8 into verse 9, where we started to look at these characteristics that are found in the Spirit-filled life. It's these characteristics that we started making our way through in our previous lesson. And we got through verse 13 in our last study, where by and large, these all had to do with our conduct and our attitudes towards those in the church. We looked at responsibilities that we have towards God, our attitude that we have towards God, we have our attitude that we have towards other believers, our attitude that we have towards our service not lacking behind in diligence. But now we come to verse 14 and we start to see a bit of a shift. A shift that doesn't just include those in the church. You'd think it would include those in the church, but not just those in the church. But now we start to include even some relationships that we have outside of the church. And from now until the end of the chapter, the examples don't get any easier for us. The things that Paul says here are not easy things to take. Because while it may seem relatively easy to check our conduct when we talk about our relationship towards one another, our relationship towards other believers, when it comes to some of the situations that Paul presents for us here in these final verses, there are some hard pills to swallow here. 
And one of those pills is found right away when we get to verse 14, which is where we left off last time. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And this is where it gets, starts to get really hard. Because now we're talking about those who have wronged us in some way. Now we're talking about those that have done something to us. The word for bless is a word that means to speak well of someone. And this goes beyond just turning the other cheek, right? I mean, when we, we talk about turning the other cheek, we, we talk about letting someone insult us or hurt us, and then just walking away, just saying, you know, I'm just going to let it go. And that type of command may be a little bit easier for us to take. But this goes beyond that. This is actually speaking well of them, blessing them, wanting what is good for them. <coughs> And you say, whoa, time out. I'm supposed to not only forgive what they've done or forget about what they've done, but I also want what's best for them. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's the example that he's giving us here. And in fact, we can look at an example. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5 with me. We see this same idea in the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus himself saying this. And we'll turn to several passages today, so get your fingers ready for some of this. Matthew chapter 5, again, Sermon on the Mount, down in verse 43. Jesus says here, and it's familiar to all of us, I'm sure, you have said that, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Right? That's a natural thing. You love those who love you. Sure we do. Of course we do. But what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's our example. God himself. What we see here is that we are to be praying for our enemies, showing love to those that persecute us. And again, the reason for this is what? It's part of the perfection that comes through the sanctified life. It is following the example of the one whose likeness we are being transformed into, right? We are being transformed into Christ and the likeness of Christ. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Why? Because we have been baptized into Jesus Christ. That's what we're striving for. That's what the end result of this transformation of sanctification is that we're going through. The perfect life, completely set apart for God in service, ultimately achieved when we get to glory. We, won't, we don't achieve perfection here on earth, but that doesn't mean that we don't keep striving for it. Today, we are to live our lives as He lived His, because we now belong to Him and are identified with Him. So the natural question here is, when we look at each and every one of these, does this characterize us? When we look at this, can we honestly say, this is what characterizes me? Do we truly hope and pray that someday our enemies, those that persecute us, those that we have a beef with, those that hate us, those that have done something wrong to us, 
Do we truly, truly wish and hope for their salvation so that we can welcome them into the family of God and be devoted to them in brotherly love? Are those the type of people that we look at and we say, I want them into the same family that I'm in. I want them to be part of this church body. If we truly want what's best for them, that is ultimately what we're talking about. Nothing could be better for anyone than for them to come to saving faith. Sometimes we take comfort in thinking that God will judge our enemies. That whatever they did, God will deal out punishment for them. Right? And we, and we rest on that. Right? We have that attitude. Maybe we don't say it out loud, but we have that attitude. They'll get theirs. They'll be sorry. And then we sit back and we expect that that's what's going to come to them. Every once in a while, you hear stories, right? Convicted murderers. I remember hearing way back when, and I know there was a movie that came out about Jeffrey Dahmer, but I remember way back when hearing that Jeffrey Dahmer came to saving faith. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I have no idea. But you hear that, and you hear your reaction to that, and you think, do I want that guy to be saved? Well, We have to ask ourselves, why don't we? Why don't we want someone like that to be saved? Why don't we want someone who's a murderer or, or has done some other heinous crime? Why don't we want them to be saved? Why wouldn't we? We stood before God guilty of sin, under his wrath, destined for condemnation. We were no better than what they were. We were right there with them. And he was merciful to us, and we deserved everlasting punishment and everlasting wrath. And he declared us to be righteous before him. We should pray for our enemies, following the same examples of Paul in the last section. Remember in, in chapters 9 through 11, Paul was talking about the Jews, right? His kinsmen. And he prayed that his fellow Jews would repent and believe, he prayed for their salvation. They were his kinsmen, yes, but you have to remember, the Jews hated Paul. His kinsmen hated him. He had gone over to the enemy, right? He was persecuting the church, and then he got saved, and now the Jews saw him as the enemy. He became saved and joined their enemies. Now the Jews were his enemies, and yet he was praying for their very salvation. Now, verse 15, he comes back to talking about believers here. And he's switching back and forth a little bit here, but it's, it's all lumped into the same type of idea. In verse 15, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is genuine involvement in the lives of other believers, both with the joys and the sorrows of our fellow believers. It goes back to the family picture again. If you remember, we talked about that back in verse 10. We were to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And as members of the same family, right? When we look at families, and I've had discussions um, with people before. Some families are closer than others. I get that. Some people look at family members and they think they don't want to have anything to do with them. But we all understand the idea that most of the time in our families, we have devotion to one another, right? We have love for one another. And as members of the same family, what's important to others ought to be important to us as well, right? Just like it is with our families. If you hear that a member of your family 
is in some type of accident. Something happens to them. You have concern, right? There's, there's, there's sorrow there. That's only natural for you to be concerned for them. But what if it's a member of this class? What if it's a member of someone in our church? Do we have that same level of concern and sorrow for someone that we know here? And it's the same way that we talk about their joys, right? Something that good that happens to them. What if you found out that someone here, had a, they got their dream job or they, they won a new car or something like that. Something, something great happened in their life. Would our joy be as great as if that happened to us as well? Would we be happy for them? I think sometimes when things like that happen, there's a little bit of jealousy. There's a little bit of bitterness. It's like, well, why did, why did they get that? Why did that happen to them? Why didn't that happen to me? But if you think about it, someone in your family, like one of your kids, they get, a, they get their dream job. You'd be, you'd be thrilled for them if that happened. Experiencing joy with them when they experiencing joy and sorrow when they do. That's the type of relationship that we are to have with those here, with those in our own body. That type of devotion, that type of love, and, that's, and that comes out of that humility that we are to have towards one another. And that devotion to brotherly love, and that's the attitude that carries over when we get now into verse 16 of the same type of thing. But he says, be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. We are reminded here, again, that in the Christian life, there's no room for self-centeredness. There's no room for trying to obtain your own personal trophies or medals in the church. Some commentators think that this verse uh, may be specifically aimed at the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles within the church, that Paul is specifically gearing this towards the maybe the rift that had been going on between Jews and Gentiles in the church. If you remember in our last section, he talked about that, the last few chapters, and he talked about don't be arrogant towards the other group. But when it comes down to it, that, that may be what Paul has in mind here, but when it comes down to it, it really doesn't matter if that's what he's talking about here specifically, because the message is still the same. This is a universal truth that would pertain to everyone in the church. He says the first phrase, be of the same mind towards one another. We should be of the same mind. Those of us here in the church should be of the same mind. Now, does that, that doesn't mean being of the same mind. It doesn't mean that we always think exactly alike on every single thing or that we always have the exact same opinions on everything. It doesn't mean that we're robots. It means that as believers, we are to be focused on one purpose. We should have oneness of purpose, oneness in our basic relationship in Christ. Turn over to chapter 15 of Romans with me for a second. He says in verse 5 of chapter 15, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Again, we should be of the same mind. Why? Because we have all... We all have the mind of Christ. That's what our minds are being transformed into, the mind of Christ. We should have that same basic purpose, that same basic goal. Philippians chapter 2. Look over in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 2 of Philippians 2. 
He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This doesn't mean that we always have to agree on every single thing. We can differ on the type of music that we sing, liking the same type of music. We can differ on whether we like to sit in chairs or whether we like to sit on the tables, right? We can differ on whether we like cream in our coffee or whether we don't like cream in our coffee. We can differ on whether we like black licorice or we don't like black licorice. That's contentious at my house. I told you about that last week. But our basic purpose ought to be the same. We have the same goals. And what is that? Our goal is to be building up the body of Christ, to spread the good news of Christ to the world around us, to serve our Lord, and to glorify God in everything that we do. That is to be our goal. That is to be our purpose. That is where our mind should be focused. That is the ultimate goal. And we shouldn't let petty differences cause divisions among us. We hear about that all the time with, with teams, different teams, football teams, baseball teams, whatever, right? They're, they're all focused on a goal. They're all focused on wanting to win a championship or wanting to win a game. They operate with that one goal in mind. And then you hear about infighting, right? You hear about disputes. You hear about players that don't get along with one another. And ultimately, what, are they, what happens? They get distracted, right? They don't have that singular focus anymore. And thing, bad things start to happen. They are no longer functioning with the same mind. And our focus needs to be in sync together. And along with that, we need to eliminate. Part of that is eliminating what Paul says next here. He says, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be conceited. Don't think too highly of yourself. And we've seen this already, but this has to do with our status and with our personal attitudes and relationships to other people. The word for lowly here, there's dispute on what he means when he says lowly. It could reference people or it could reference things. And if it's referencing things, some consider, it'd be somebody considering that maybe there are certain tasks that are too good for them. Those things are beneath me. Um, you can't expect me to do that. I'm, I'm too important to be able to, to have to do that. But I believe the context here shows that what he's talking about, he's talking about people. He's talking about lowly people, people that you might consider to be of a lower class than you. And Paul is saying that for the believer, we should never think of ourselves in a context that places us above each other in status or importance. Who you are doesn't really matter within the church. So you're a doctor. So you're a politician. So you're an athlete, so you're a coach. Maybe you're the president of the United States. What are you when you get home? Does your family care about what you are when you get home? At work, I'm a lead engineer. Do you think my wife cares that I'm a lead engineer at work? No, when I get home, I work at home, so I don't get home, but you understand. When I'm at home, I'm the guy that needs to mow the lawn. I'm the guy that needs to take out the trash, right? What I am at work, status I have at work, makes no difference. Well, that's how it is in the church. There's no room for aristocracy. There's no room for elitism within the church. And you hear about churches that are like that. They have cliques or groups that only associate 
with one another. And those groups get catered to. That's not the pattern of believers living the spirit-filled life. You don't elevate yourself over one another. You're the CEO of your company. I'm happy for you. That must be a very difficult job. Now, how can I pray for you? Oh, help me pick up chairs. None of that should matter. In church, we're all on the same level of importance. Do not be wise in your own estimation, he says. This goes along with the previous example. Someone who is wise in their own estimation, um, they not only think highly of themselves, but they think of themselves as self-sufficient. They, doesn't, they, they don't need the input of others to accomplish what they know, know to be right. They're prideful or arrogant. They're someone who's never wrong. Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. This is not the attitude that Christians should have. Have you ever gotten into an argument with someone? And halfway through the argument, you're going back and forth and back and forth, and halfway through the argument, you realize that your position no longer makes sense even to you. You realize that they're probably right, and your argument really doesn't hold any water anymore. But there's no way that you're going to lose that argument. And you're just going to keep arguing even though you know that you're probably wrong. There are people that leave churches over things like this that would rather walk out and hold on to what they believe to be right even if the only basis for it is in their minds and they, that, rather than admit that they're wrong. And I'm not talking about doctrinal things. That's a whole other level that we're talking about. I'm talking about petty things. As believers, we need to be open to correction. We need to be open to exhortation from our brethren. We should never see ourselves as being too good or too knowledgeable for someone else to speak to us like that. Why is this person approaching me and telling me these things? Why, why should I listen to what they have to say? Both this and being wise in our own estimation and being conceited can keep us from doing what it is that we need to do. It can keep us from having that like-minded single focus that we need to have being of the same mind towards one another. These are all things that should be true in the life of a believer. They aren't natural in the world to our flesh, for, but they are produced in us by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in us. Now as we come to verse 17, we see probably one of the most difficult concepts for us to accept here. One of the hardest things for us to put into practice. That concept of how we are to act when we've been mistreated, when we've been wronged by someone else. Now, we already brought this up in verse 14, but now we're going to finish out the chapter along the same lines. He kind of brings this up again. What is our reaction? What is our gut instinct? What kind of emotions flow out of us when someone has wronged us, when someone has mistreated us? Jenny's not in here. She knows this this story, but when I, was a, when I was a kid, she hates it when I tell this story, so that's why I'm, I'm going to say it, because she's not in here. When I was a kid, I had an example. I was in junior high, and I was sitting at a table in the library over lunch, 
And there were three other kids that came in and they sat down at the table with me, four people at a table. And I was reading a book and they were loud and rowdy. And I didn't even know them. And one of the teachers came over and said, you guys need to calm down or you're all gonna get detention. And I looked at him surprised because I had literally just been reading. I said, even me? He said, yeah, even you. And I, okay. So I sat for the whole rest of the time sideways in my chair, reading my book in my lap. The next day, right before lunch, I get a note from the office. I got detention. I had to go in for detention that day. And I got into detention. I was the only one of the four of us from that table that got detention. It still makes me mad, but anyway. <laughs> but you get wronged, right? You, you, you get into a situation where you're like, That's, that shouldn't happen. That should not be happening to me. Oh, there she is. She didn't hear it, so I'll tell her about it later. <laughs> but you have that natural tendency when you're wronged to be like, oh, that just can't stand. You can tell I still get worked up over it. And I was a little kid then. But when we're put into that situation, the natural response for a fallen being is to want to get some type of payback, is to want to get back at someone, is to want to get some type of revenge. For those who are living by the flesh, that's a natural reaction. But there's a problem with that, right? When we think about that, and we think about our attitude, and we think about those um, living by the flesh, is that as believers, we don't live by the flesh any longer. Right? We've been saved out of that. We live by the Spirit. We saw that when we were back in chapter 8. We don't live by the flesh any longer. We have our minds focused on the Spirit. So as those living by the Spirit, what should our reaction be when we're in a situation where we're wronged, when we're mistreated? How should we respond when we suffer personal attacks? Well, that's what we see in verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. We see here the negative side of what was said a few verses earlier. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Now there we saw that we uh, were to want what was best for our persecutors. We were to speak well of them. That's what we are to do. That's a positive aspect of it. But now as we come to verse 17, we see what we're not to do, right? Even in verse 14, he says, do not curse. But that's just speaking. That's that's don't say bad things about them. Now we're talking about action. We're talking about do not pay back evil for evil. The idea here really is very simple and straightforward. There are no exceptions to this. The literal translation for this verse, to no one evil for evil pay back. And the word for no one is put first in the phrase. Now, I don't know if we've talked about this much, but in the Greek language, when you want to emphasize something and you want to make something the most important in the phrase or the verse or the sentence, you put it first. It's not like in English where it has to go in certain orders. In Greek, you want it emphasized, you put it first. And the first thing in this phrase is to no one pay back evil for evil. The emphasis is on the one to whom we should pay back evil. That is to no one. Why do I emphasize this? That's beating a dead horse, right? To no one, okay, I get it. Why do I emphasize this? Because inevitably, we all hear this and we say, okay, I get it, that's the general rule, fine, 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 but you don't know my situation. 
I realize the general rule is that we shouldn't pay them back, but my case is an exception. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they took from me. You don't know what they said about me. You don't know what they did to someone close to me. You're right, I don't. I don't know. I don't know your personal situation, but it doesn't matter. The language here is all-inclusive. You never do this to anyone. There's no exception here. Now, most of the time, it's not that well thought out. Most of the time, it's just a natural reaction that we're talking about here. We lash out, we get angry, we want to retaliate immediately. When I was a kid, again, back to the, the kids aspect of it, no one could make me angrier as a kid than my brother. I think that's just the way it is with brothers, right, or siblings. No one could get me fired up more than my brother. I was usually pretty easygoing. Usually things didn't affect me all that much, but my brother knew every button to push, and I would lash out when my brother would make me mad. For some reason, this type of attitude, maybe it's not a sibling, maybe you don't really do it much today, but I'm going to bring up a subject that maybe makes some people cringe. This attitude seems to manifest itself most readily when we're where? The car, on the road. Road rage, right? Everybody gets a little funny in road rage. What's that? Grocery store. I don't know that one, but maybe the parking lot of grocery store. Okay. There was a, a funny quote I saw recently online. I was reminded of it this week. I said, someone just honked at me to get me out of my parking space faster. So now we both have to sit here till one of us is dead. <laughs> now that's a humorous take on a situation, but there's probably more than a few of us here who understand exactly what that's talking about, right? It's that mentality that we have of you can't wrong me, you can't mistreat me, I don't like that and I'm going to get back at you somehow. I'm not going to take that from you. Even as parents, we sometimes give advice to our kids about not taking anything from other kids, right? If they hit you, you hit them right back. Don't let them walk all over you. But is that really a biblical way of doing things? Is that the way that God intends for his children to behave? Think of it this way. If we were to retaliate when someone wronged us, would that set us apart from the world? Or would it be going right along with what the world does? Remember verse 2 of our chapter here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We are different. Paul tells us in Philippians that we are no longer citizens of this world. We are aliens here. We are citizens of heaven. We are not to be conformed to this world, shaped and molded to what the world is like, to what the world says is normal, to what the world would do. But we are being transformed, changed. We know the will of God. We know what His desires are for our lives, and His Holy Spirit works in us daily to renew our minds to bring about this transformation. That is sanctification. That is how we are being set apart from this world set apart, separated from this world to God. 
on a continual daily basis. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter gives some commands to believers here, even starting back into chapter 2. He talks about how we are to behave with others, relationships between servants and masters, husbands and wives, talks about behaving our behavior towards those in authority. And then we come to verse 8 of chapter 3, and he says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. And once again, this is how we are to believe. This is the behavior of the believer, the positive list here. And we've seen many of these things already in our study, right? Emphasizing the attitude that we are to have. Now, verse 9 is where it gets difficult again. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This is the same as what we're talking about in Romans. Don't return evil for evil. Don't trade an insult for an insult. But give what? Give a blessing instead, he says. That's crazy talk. Someone insults me, someone harms me, another kid punches my kid in the nose, and I'm supposed to give them a blessing? I'm supposed to do something kind for them? I'm supposed to want what's best for them? Yes, that's what we're saying. Does that seem normal? Does that seem like an ordinary response? Does that seem like the way that the world would expect us to act? Not at all. It sets us apart from the world. It shows us to be different from the world. And it would mean that there is something not entirely normal about us. Well, you know what? Our lives should show that. Sanctified, set apart from the world to God. When it comes to what the world says is normal and what God says is normal, they're not the same thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Turn over there with me for a minute. See the same thing here. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Again, the same thing, the same odd, quote-unquote, odd behavior. Paying back evil for evil is not what we're to be about. This is one of the characteristics of living the transformed life. There is something, this is something that we should be maturing into as we strive to be more and more like Christ. But we should seek after what's best for them, what's good for them, even those who would persecute us, even those that would seek to harm us. I mentioned it earlier, but we have Paul as an example of this. He's one example, right? The Jews hated Paul. They wanted him dead. They had plots against him. What was Paul's response? He prayed for them, for their salvation. His, his ministry to the Gentiles he saw as a means by which Jews could be saved. He grieved over their lost condition. But Paul's just one example, and he's not even the best example. There's another example, perfect example. What about Jesus himself? He's hanging on the cross. 
There are people looking on, sneering at him. Soldiers are casting lots to divide his garments. They're mocking him. People are watching him die. And he says in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus went to the cross and died for those who were his enemies. He died for those who hated him. He died for those who were persecuting him. He showed his love for them by giving his own life for them. That's the example that we have in what we're talking about here. Paul develops this further in verse 17 of Romans 12. He says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. So we should never repay an evil deed. Why? Because we are to respect what is right in the sight of all men. Now, there are some, there are some things that everyone knows whether they are right or wrong. Right? We saw that back in, in chapter 1, way back when we were in chapter 1. Paul listed out an entire catalog of sins at the end of that chapter. And then in verse 32, he talks about how they know the ordinance of God, and those who practice such things are worthy of death. They know these things. They know what's right and wrong. There is a general knowledge that all men have of what is right and what is wrong, because God has made certain things evident to everyone. Even an unbeliever would admit that lying is not ethically or morally superior to telling the truth. Cheating on your spouse is not better than remaining faithful. Taking revenge on someone isn't superior to turning the other cheek. The world might convince themselves that these things are necessary from time to time, that there's a place for these things from time to time. They might defend the fact that they do these things, but in their conscience, they know that these things are not right. That's what we're talking about here. Mankind is depraved. Mankind is lost in sin, and yet they still have a general sense of what's right and what's wrong. What we're seeing here in Romans chapter 12 is that as believers, we should always be giving consideration for the things that are right in the eyes of all men. We have a responsibility to maintain our testimony before the world, before all men. What we do as the children of God, as ambassadors for Christ, should be well thought out in advance and should always be in line with the character of our new life in Christ. What we do, how we behave, how we respond to situations in front of other people, believer and unbeliever, it makes a difference. It does matter. Now, this verse doesn't mean that we let the world dictate what's right and wrong. When we talk about what's right in the sight of all men, it doesn't mean that we let the world dictate what's right and wrong, or that we are to seek out how to make ourselves to be more pleasing to everyone in the world. We can't take this too far. What is right and wrong is still defined by God. We need to be doing what is pleasing to God first. And if doing what is right before God conflicts what is, with what is right before men, then we should choose what God would have us do. But that doesn't give us license to give offense to those in the world whenever we want to. It doesn't give us license to be offending just for the sake of being offending. As long as our conduct is right before God first, we should make sure that it's also right before others as well. And this is part of our testimony. This is part of our witness to those in the world. We can, we can show people a lot 
about what it means to be a Christian before we ever open our mouths to share the gospel by living the right way. But what about the damage that can be done as well, right? You think of the flip side of this. There's damage that can be done too if we're not known for doing what's right. People that know us best know that we don't always do the right thing. We don't always do the honest thing. We join in on the crude humor at work. We take revenge on someone who's wronging us. We have those types of responses and that's what the world sees of us. How do those types of attitudes and those types of behaviors that we have affect our ability to share the gospel later on? Will they listen? Will they take us seriously? We sit there and tell somebody, you know what? Believing in Jesus Christ, becoming a Christian is, results in a changed life and they look at us and they say, well, your life's not any different than anyone else's. What kind of change is that? Will they have an accurate picture of the spirit-filled life of the believer? Our lives should reflect the character of Christ. First Peter, once again, turn over to First Peter again with me. I told you we'd be flipping around different places. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Those are unbelievers. So then in the that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We see here another example of the attacks that will come to believers. The unbelievers slander us, bring false accusations is what we're talking about here. We're to keep our own behavior excellent among them. Why? So that their accusations are false, so that all they have are false accusations against us. They can slander us all they want, but for the believer, there should never be any truth to their slanders, to their lies. We should be above reproach in the eyes of the world. We give them no cause to slander us, to make any real accusations against us. The ultimate goal would be for their salvation, to show them what it truly means to be a believer and to have a witness and a testimony for them, in front of them. That there's a difference in us. And verse 15 of 1 Peter 2, For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Here's the impact that this behavior has. By doing right, they're silenced. What more can they say? They have to make up accusations. They have nothing to actually accuse us of. Over in chapter 3, verse 16, and keep a good conscience, so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Once again, there's no foundation for their accusations. They are shamed when their accusations are proven to have no merit. Now, in the context of Romans 12, 17, go ahead and turn back there. The idea is that by maintaining our witness before men, by not giving in to retaliation, we have an opportunity to shine as lights for Christ by being loving and kind to those around us. Showing that there is something different about us. We do not go along with the flow, but we follow at all times what is right. And that leads us right into verse 18, where he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And this flows in the context here, flows right out of what we've just seen. We don't retaliate. We do what is right. We maintain peace with all men. Now, we understand that this is something that we may not 
have complete control over, right? Which is why Paul qualifies it here for, with, by saying, so far as it depends on you. But for your part, you are to be doing all that is possible to be at peace with everyone, believer or unbeliever. With some people, there's no peace to be had with them. They might have a grudge against you. They might hate you for some reason. And there's nothing that you can say or do that, that makes a difference to change that. Some people may hate us simply because we're Christians. They don't like the fact that we're Christians. Now that's on them. But it should never be the other way around. There should never be a case where we can't reconcile with someone because we won't talk to them. Or we don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm only going to give them so many chances. They had their chance. And now it's done. Look at the example of Paul. Wherever he went, he was in trouble. He had people mad at him. He had people trying to imprison him or kill him. But it was never from his own doing. He never went in looking for trouble. What was the cause of this trouble? Why did people hate him? Because he came in preaching the word of God. He came in with the gospel. That's going to offend people. That is going to make some people dislike us, but that's not what we're talking about here. That's not something that we have any control over. We can't take this verse and say, oh, well, the gospel offends. They don't like to hear the gospel, and I need to be at peace with them, so I don't share the gospel with them anymore. Or we can't sit there and say, they don't like it when I talk about sin. That gets them mad, so I don't talk about sin. That's not what Paul has in mind here. We know that that's not what Paul has in mind here because we're studying a letter that started off with a detailed discussion on man's sinful condition, man being under the wrath of God. Paul presented that in detail in two and a half chapters. Now, what we're talking about here is our daily conduct. We should never hold a grudge or be the one to refuse a settlement to a problem because that is not consistent with godly character. For the most part, when we think of this, it's between us and an unbeliever. We, we have easy times thinking about that, but unfortunately, feuds don't always exist just between us and unbelievers. Feuds exist within the church. I will never understand how two believers can carry on a feud with one another, have such animosity towards one another, as far as it, as it is up to each one that they should be at peace with one another. How can two people, families, whatever, that are both living the Christian life, that are both under the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, how can they carry a grudge against each other? Especially after reading verse 18 here, verses 9 and 10, verse 16. I hear of people that have petty problems. And by the way, if you're involved in one of these issues, you think it's a big deal, but it's petty. And everyone else knows that it's petty. But I hear of this, and you just want to knock some sense into them. You are to love each other without hypocrisy. You are to put one another first. You are to defer, to defer to each other. You are to be at peace as long as it depends on you. When there are two parties biblically acting in this way, where is there room for two people to have a grudge against each other? Where is there any wiggle room for this to even happen? There isn't any. Whatever we can do to be at peace with those around us, we should be willing to do. Verse 19. Where are we at? 
Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Again, we come back to the issue of retaliation and revenge. The issue of doing what is right and being at peace are bookended by this concept. We never take our own revenge in any circumstance. Paul brings in a word of warmth by referring to the Romans as beloved here, saying this out of love, reminding them that he's not uncaring, that he's not unsympathetic to anything they might be going through, but he goes into more detail on why we're not to take revenge here. Why, why shouldn't we take revenge? And the reason is that revenge or judgment is something that God has reserved for himself. He quotes here from Deuteronomy 32, 35, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If God is wronged or his children are wronged, those that belong to him, those that he has saved to himself, then he will deal with them as he sees fit. It is not for us to take that task to our own hands. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Proverbs 24, 29 says, Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Throughout Scripture, the idea is the same. Vengeance is reserved for God alone. In submissiveness to him, I need to wait for him to deal with it. Put whatever it is in his hands. For some reason, that's not easy for us to do, is it? God says he'll save me if I trust him. I believe that. He says that one day I'll spend eternity with him in heaven, in glory. I believe that. So then he says not to take revenge. He'll handle it. Why do I have trouble believing that? I don't know. I've got some pretty specific ideas in mind as far as how this should be handled, Lord. Maybe I should just take care of it myself this time. That's not my decision. That's not for me to decide. God says that he will take care of it, and that should be enough for me. Maybe he'll take care of it immediately. That's what I want. That's what I would do. Maybe it happens a year later. Maybe we never know. Probably we never know how God deals with that situation. But it doesn't matter. It's not my prerogative. It's God's, and I leave it in his hands. So what do I do? Do I just sit back and I wait for God to act? Do I just distance, my, distance myself? It goes back to what we've been talking about. Paul uses a quote from Proverbs 25 in the next verse, verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And here, once again, we see it taken a step further. We sometimes think that we've really accomplished something just by letting it go, by not taking revenge or just excusing ourselves from the situation. But now what? Now we're actually supposed to treat them with kindness. The concept of food and drink simply indicates providing for their needs. Again, showing them love, showing them kindness. They did such and such to me, and now they've fallen flat on their face. They've gotten what they've deserved. I'm happy they're suffering. Is that our response? We might have to admit that sometimes it is. But if they can use our help, we should be willing to help them. I'll give you a hypothetical situation. I go back to cars. I know, everybody hates these. What about that guy that's cutting you off in traffic, tailgating you? You're on the interstate. He's weaving in and out of traffic, and he's right up behind you. He's, maybe he's even honking at you. 
and then they finally pass you. And maybe as they go by, they throw some obscene gesture your way, right? Usually that doesn't sit well with us. And then a few miles down the road, you see a familiar car off to the side of the road. Oh, it's that guy. He's on the side of the road. Oh, he's got a flat tire. What's our response? What's our reaction? Usually, we're happy about that. Do we think about stopping, maybe, and helping him change his tire? Probably not, but maybe we should. Again, it's doing what is right. We have an opportunity to shine through with our testimony for Christ. This is the part in this that is our responsibility. It's not the getting even part. It's the doing what's right part. It's the being at peace and respecting what's right in the sight of all men part. Now, the last part of verse 20 is a difficult part of this verse. And there's a lot of debate over what, he's, what he means when he says this, right? We're, we're to feed them, we're to give them a drink, for in doing so, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What does that mean? Well, there are a couple different ways that, that this can be seen. And the first way is that he means that by doing good to those who are persecuting us, we actually put them to shame by our actions. And we saw something like this in 1 Peter just a few minutes ago. 1 Peter 3.16, And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. When someone wrongs you, and all you do back to them is respond with kindness or respond with what's right, it brings about shame on them with the ultimate goal of bringing about a repentant heart and therefore potentially bringing that person to saving faith. Now there's truth to that, and that could be what Paul is talking about here. That view is based, it really comes down to the view of what are these burning coals that he's talking about. That view is based on an understanding of the burning coals being a reference to an ancient Egyptian custom where a person expressed repentance for an evil deed by walking around with a pan filled with burning coals on his head. So there was this ancient custom, supposedly, and, and so people key in on that, and they say, well, that must be what Paul's talking about here. So the coals were an expression of repentance due to their shame. And that's what I'd always thought that this was referring to. But the Egyptian reference is somewhat obscure, and it seems like a stretch for Paul to be referencing that here. So recently I, read, I heard another view, and I think I fall more along these lines here. But the references to burning coals throughout Scripture are indicative of the judgment of God. You look at verses like Psalm 140, verse 10, Psalm 11:4, even Revelation 20, 20, talking about um, fire that burns with brimstone or burning coals. The coals of fire are often used in Scripture to refer to God's judgment. And with this view, Paul's use of this quote is really in parallel with what he just said in verse 19. You don't take your own revenge. Revenge is not up to you. God will deal with them in due time. So what's our part in that situation? Well, the feeding and the giving of a drink to our enemy, the giving them the kindness, doing what is right in their eyes, in the eyes of all men, the, what's right in the sight of God. That's what our response is. That's what we are called to do. Now, if our enemy is unrepentant after being shown the kindness of God's children, then the judgment of God will fall on him. 
What's happening in that situation is, what the, is that the man shows to be what we saw way back in chapter 2 of Romans. And I'll just read these verses here. Romans 2, starting in verse 2, says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. So believers, the children of God, acting in accordance with God's will and showing love towards those in the world are part of the kindness and the tolerance and the patience that Paul's talking about here. When we were in Romans chapter 2, when we studied through Romans chapter 2, we hadn't gotten to believers in our building blocks yet, right? We hadn't talked about those that were saved yet. But now that we've come further along in the letter, we can see that we actually have a role to play in the way that God works in the world. The unrepentant man continuing in his sin is storing up God's wrath. The burning coals are what are coming for him someday in judgment. As God shows him kindness through his general grace, which includes the acts of his saints here and now, right? By us showing kindness to those in the world, that is part of God's general grace. We're showing kindness. He shows kindness through us. He continues to store up more and more wrath for himself as he continues in his sin. So that's what I think makes the most sense here. It's mostly just a difference between what the burning coals signify, either his shame or judgment coming upon him. But I think it fits better with Scripture that it's indicative of God's judgment that's coming against him. But either way, our part is to worry about the way that we respond to their needs, and we let God worry about the response that happens afterwards. Now, Paul summarizes this all together in verse 21. Are we out of time? Oh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So instead of giving in to sin, not waiting for God, doing what is wrong instead of what is right, being overcome by evil, I should turn it around overcome the evil that has been done to me with kindness by doing good to them. Even with a desire to see my enemy become a child of God or to turn from their own sin, that would be the ultimate goal, to see them saved, see as many of God's enemies saved as would repent and believe. So we'll go ahead and end there since we're out of time. So, Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in your word this morning, and we thank you, Lord, for the book of Romans. We just pray, Lord, that you would help us to take these truths that we see here in this letter, use them in our lives to bring glory and honor to you. And Lord, I just pray that you would be with us as we go into the next hour. Just pray for your uh, understanding into the word as Josh brings us the word once again, and we pray, Lord, that, that it would be a time that would honor you. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.